this wife and mother that you see in the picture, she's a Chinese Christian lady. Her name is Tseng Ju. It's going to be my best attempt at pronouncing her name. She is in her uh, mid-twenties, in this picture anyway. This is her husband and her two sons, age three and one in that picture. Uh, they are now five and three, and she has not seen them since this picture was taken because she was put in prison by the Chinese government for teaching kindergarten. Uh, they are Christians in the illegal church in China. It is also illegal to give any to teach anyone under 18 about Jesus. The communist government forbids that. She taught in a kindergarten that this church runs. Even though the curriculum of the kindergarten was not specifically Christian, all of the teachers were Christians and from the church. The kids were from the church. They were, re they were receiving teaching about Jesus in church. But the government found out about their school. They came in and closed it down and arrested all the teachers and put them in prison. She's been in prison for two years. Her youngest son does not remember her. Her husband is allowed to visit once a month, but he can't see her. They speak through a phone line, through a concrete wall. Two years in prison for teaching kindergarten kids about Jesus. Even though it is illegal in China, the Chinese church does teach their kids about Jesus. And there are millions and millions of Christians in China. The government cannot stop the church from growing, Jesus from spreading. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. In obedience to that verse, and primarily through the ministry called Voice of the Martyrs that encouraged American and Canadian Christians to write letters, there was about 3,000 letters that came from America and Canada to the Chinese government petitioning for her release from prison, and she actually was released, I believe, about two weeks ago. Uh, she was released and has been reunited with her husband and her boys. They will have to move. They're on a secret police watch list. They can't expose the church that they're part of. Their entire life is uprooted. I won't say destroyed, but uprooted, and they will have to start completely over and be very, very careful the rest of their lives because wherever they choose to find to go to church, they'll be followed. This man is Father Tom, Tom Hunalil. He is an Indian Catholic priest who was stationed by the Catholic Church in Yemen. And two months ago, he was taken hostage by ISIS, and they published to the world that they were going to crucify him on Good Friday. Two months ago in March, they were going to crucify him on Good Friday to mock the crucifixion of Jesus, to terrorize the Christians in Yemen, and just to do what ISIS does. It's, it's what they do. This photo was published while he was being held hostage, hoping that he would be spared. He was not. He was crucified publicly in Yemen on the Friday before we celebrated Easter back in March. A story from October of 2015, seven months ago, this happened in Syria. I just read the news story to you. ISIS savages cut off a Christian boy's fingertips in front of his father before crucifying both of them. The terror group were trying to force Syrian Christians in a village near Aleppo to convert to Islam. The boy was 12. He's the son of a Syrian pastor who set up nine churches in the war-ravaged country. 
In front of a team leader and relatives in the crowd, the Muslims cut off the fingertips of the boy and severely beat him, telling his father that they would stop if he would convert to Islam, the Christian aid mission reported. When the team leader refused, relatives said the ISIS militants tortured and beat his father and two other ministry workers. The three men and the boys then met their deaths in crucifixion. Eight other aid workers, including two women, were also executed for bravely standing up to the brutal militants, according to the charity which supports persecuted Christians worldwide. The women were 29 and 33. They were raped in front of a crowd that was ordered to attend to watch. And they continued to pray out loud during their harrowing ordeal. Villagers said some were praying in the name of Jesus, others were praying the Lord's Prayer. Others said some of them lifted their heads to commend their spirits to Jesus. Afterwards, all eight were beheaded for refusing to turn away from Christ. Their bodies were hung on crosses for display after they were killed. It is very easy to find photos of crucifixions online. This is the only one that I could possibly show in public in a scenario like this. They're just too gruesome. These 12 people all were beheaded before they were crucified or four of them after. This is what ISIS does to our brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq, and they're just as much our brothers and sisters as anybody in this room. I suppose that most of you know about this last year. These are Egyptian Coptic Christians who had gone to Libya to work on the oil rigs in the desert. ISIS showed up, took everybody hostage, sorted out the Muslims and let them go, and they held the Christians where they took them to the beach and filmed their beheading for the rest of the world to watch. They said these are the people of the cross and they deserve to die. They cut their heads off with knives and filmed it and showed it to the whole world. I don't know if you saw that or not, but it was all broadcast there. Not a single one of them chickened out. Not a single one said, I'll become a Muslim to save my head. They all went silently and bravely to meet Jesus. Revelation 6, 9 through 11 says, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for their faithfulness to their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us? Then a white robe was given to each of them and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. Martyrdom is not a thing of the past. I know that probably most of you know about Christians being fed to lions in the days of the Roman arenas, the gladiators. I suppose you've heard of people being burned at the stake in the medieval period, but there are tens and perhaps hundreds of thousands of people in prisons and camps in China and North Korea and Vietnam and Cuba and Burma right now today. Murder and rape of Christians just because they are Christians happens daily in Iraq or Syria or Colombia or Mexico, Egypt, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Sudan, Nigeria, Southern Africa. Our own missionaries in Afghanistan have been here that we know and love. They had one of their team members shot point blank in the face two years ago. The Taliban ambushed their jeep as they were driving into town. And they killed them because they were known Christians and because they were operating a school where they were teaching girls how to read. The Taliban didn't want their girls literate. So they ambushed the jeep with three of those 
team members on it. Two of them were shot. The driver got the Jeep turned around and got out of there. One guy was shot point blank in the head. The other guy survived his wounds, but that's the main reason that left Afghanistan. It was too dangerous to keep their team and their children in Afghanistan. Matthew 10 says this, Jesus is speaking. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Then when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That Syrian pastor, of course, loved his son with all his heart. But he knew this scripture. Jesus said, if you love your children more than me, you're not worthy. He could not deny Jesus to save his son or his own skin. 2,000 years of church history display to us that this verse is very true. Of course it is. Jesus spoke it. But he promised it would happen and the apostles of the New Testament promised it would happen. 1933, when Adolf Hitler assumed power in Germany, one of the immediate demands of the Nazis was that any Christian who had Jewish heritage had to be removed from any church in Germany. There was only one pastor in the entire nation that spoke up publicly against this order as racist. It was 27-year-old Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 27 years old. He's the only one brave enough to speak up. Two days after Hitler was installed as chancellor, Bonhoeffer delivered a radio address in which he attacked Hitler and he warned Germany against slipping into an idolatrous cult of the Fuhrer who could very, very well turn out to be the misleader. He was cut off from the radio air in the middle of the sentence. It's unclear whether the Nazis did that or not. 
But why at the age of 27 was Bonhoeffer the lone German minister who immediately saw the scandal of excluding Jewish believers from the church? It was because he had visited America three years before in 1930, and that visit had taught him to connect his faith and his practice. Initially, in 1930, when Bonhoeffer came to America, he was disgusted with our Christianity. He was bewildered and frustrated by theologians who didn't care about doctrine and preachers who were not interested in the gospel. Instead, everybody wanted to preach about social issues. So in time, however, he came to realize that his fellow Germans were also half wrong in refusing to recognize that there were ethical demands on the Christian life. It was in the black churches of Harlem, New York City in 1930 that Bonhoeffer found a community committed to both gospel proclamation and social action. He made a lifelong friend, an African-American preacher from Alabama named Frank Fisher, and he saw in the faith of black American Christians of the time a solid biblical theology and a commitment to peaceful, nonviolent social resistance that shaped his thinking. It even changed his faith from an academic one to a practical action. But what power did Bonhoeffer have in 1933? He was 27 years old. He was financially dependent on his parents. He had no job and never had had a job. Unemployed theology students don't usually stand opposite world dictators, but Bonhoeffer did. Within weeks of Adolf Hitler's rise to power, Bonhoeffer declared in public that the Fuhrer was offering a false path to salvation, and in private he told anybody that would listen that Hitler was an antichrist. Bonhoeffer was the most radical and outspoken opponent of Nazi church policy. There was a Nazi-led group of pastors in the Lutheran church in Germany that called themselves Deutsche Christen, the, Do- the German Christians. And they demanded that anyone with Jewish blood be removed from the church, only baptism for Aryan people, only ordination for Aryan people, and that the Fuhrer was the head of the church. Actually taught that Adolf Hitler was the head of the church. So... In response to that, an emergency league was formed of pastors who opposed those evil changes. Eventually, the Nazis tightened their stranglehold on the Lutheran church. So these rebels actually, the rebel pastors actually had to leave the Lutheran church altogether. They began to call themselves the Confessing Church, as opposed to the German church, which was run by the Nazis, or they called them the Destroyed Church. Only 20% of German ministers joined the Confessing Church because it was illegal. The rest stayed in the Nazi-controlled Lutheran churches to save their own skins. In summer of 1933, he moved to London. He was sharply rebuked by Karl Barth, who was another a fellow pastor, for running away from the battle and leaving his house while it was on fire. So in 1935, he moved back to Germany and he started a secret underground seminary to train pastors for the confessing church, which was illegal and had to meet in secret. They were discovered by the Gestapo, which is the secret police of the Nazis. He spent two years on the run. It was during that time that he wrote his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. In June of 1939, this is still before the war actually started. Hitler has been in charge in Germany for six years, but World War II is not going to start for another three months. In June of 1939, he got a teaching job in New York, and he left for America. And all of his friends said, good for you, stay in America, stay out. This is great opportunity. This is the will of the Lord. But as soon as he got here, he was in agony in his conscience. And he wrote back to a fellow German pastor and he said, quote, I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America. 
I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany now have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation so that civilization can survive or willing the victory of our nation and destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I choose, and I cannot make that choice from security. So he returned to Germany on the last scheduled steamship to cross the Atlantic from the U.S. back to Germany. World War II started three months later, 1939 in September. Bonhoeffer was 33 years old. He was concerned about being drafted as a Nazi soldier. He was an avowed pacifist, and he was a very public Nazi opponent. The way to get out of the draft was to get himself a government job. So despite being on a government watch list, he was forbidden to preach anywhere in Germany. He was required to, to report to the police on a regular basis. He got himself hired by the Obwehr, which is the CIA of Nazi Germany. So even though he's on the watch list in the Gestapo, he gets hired on as a Nazi spy because his brother-in-law works for the Obwehr, and it was totally a cover. They were all double agents working for the resistance and smuggling Jews into Switzerland and Norway. So he got himself a, a job working as a Nazi spy, but really he was a double agent for the resistance. As he became increasingly aware of the extermination camps and the gas chambers and the ovens and the genocide that was taking place, his commitment to Christian pacifism was challenged. He had been so impressed by the black church in the American South with their nonviolent social Christianity. He was such a firm believer in pacifism that he had applied to study under Gandhi in India and he'd been accepted, but he had to turn it down because things were too hot in Germany. That's how committed of a pacifist he was. But now... When he learns what the Nazis are doing, his conscience is a wreck. He definitely believed that war and murder, indeed killing or violence at all, were all sins. But he was completely unable to stand by while the Nazis carried out their slaughter. He concluded that the ultimate question for a responsible man to ask is not how he is to extricate himself heroically from this affair, but how will the coming generation continue to live? When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. Jesus summons to the rich young man who was calling him to die because only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. He was wrestling in his conscience with, what do I do? I'm a committed pacifist. I won't take violence, but I can't stand by knowing what I know is going on. He came to the conclusion that ultimately his conscience would not allow him to not take action. He had to do something to stop Hitler. He came to understand that God would judge him if he did not take action against what was happening. He didn't justify his actions, though. He said that he accepted guilt upon himself. He wrote this, quote, When a man takes guilt upon himself in responsibility, he answers for it. Before the other men, he is justified by dire necessity. Before himself, he is acquitted in his conscience. But before God, he hopes only for grace. Back in 1932, when he was 25 years old, he saw that this was coming, that there was going to come a time when Christians in Germany were going to have to pay a price of blood. He said this, 
before Hitler even was chancellor of Germany and seven years before there was a war or a holocaust. He said this, the blood of martyrs might well once again be demanded, but this blood, if we really have the courage and loyalty to shed it, will not be innocent, shining like that of the first witnesses of the faith. On our blood lies heavy guilt. Under the cover of the Abwehr, Bonhoeffer served as a courier for the German resistance movement to reveal its existence and its intentions to the Allies. And through his pastor contacts in Allied nations, he secured possible peace terms with the Allies for a post-Hitler government. He visited Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland, camouflaged as legitimate spying activities for the Nazis, but he was actually meeting with Allied government contacts. He and his brother-in-law were smuggling people into Switzerland. But on April 5, 1943, he and his brother-in-law were arrested and put in prison. For a year and a half, Bonhoeffer was sat in prison awaiting trial. There he continued his work of religious outreach among his fellow prisoners and guards. Many letters were smuggled out for him by sympathetic guards. One of those guards, a corporal named Knobloch, even offered to help him escape and then disappear with him. And they made plans to do that, but in the end, Bonhoeffer declined it because he feared the Nazis would kill all of his family. On July 20, 1944, there was an assassination plot against Hitler that failed. If you are not uh, aware, there was a lot of people in Germany during the Nazi period who were not Nazis. The Nazis were actually a very small group of very wicked people who controlled the country. Sounds a lot like America 2016. It's a very small group running the show who are driving us into hell. There was a lot of people in the military. There was a lot of people in the government who were not loyal to Hitler at all, and they saw what was going on. They had a conscience about it. It wasn't just pastors like Bonhoeffer. The head of the Abwehr, which again is the spying agency, the top admiral in the Navy was the one that tried to kill Hitler. He had a place of authority that in the cabinet meetings with Hitler, he would sit next to Hitler at the table. So the plan amongst the conspirators was that he would bring a bomb in his suitcase and flip the switch, and it had a timer of some sort on it, and it would blow up. He walked in with the bomb in his briefcase, set it down between his chair and Hitler's chair, flipped the switch, and Hitler got up to go to the bathroom. He excused, the admiral excused himself real quick, and the bomb blew up. It was... It was obvious it was an assassination plot. Hitler orders investigation, hang everybody that's involved. And although he had not been directly involved, Bonhoeffer's name appeared in documents with the conspirators. His brother-in-law was an active part of it. Bonhoeffer was not, but he was involved in everything else they were doing. He certainly would have known about it. But when people plot things like that, they intentionally don't tell other people because you don't want information leaking out. And through torture or whatever. So Bonhoeffer may not have known, but he definitely knew that something was up. So he was arrested. He was transferred from the military prison in Buch to Buchenwald concentration camp and finally to Flossenburg concentration camp. He was led away to be hanged on April 9, 1945, just after he concluded his final Sunday service. He said to the other prisoners as he walked off, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. It was only two weeks before American soldiers got to that camp and set everybody free. It was one month before Germany surrendered. The Nazi doctor that was at the execution is the only historical witness to his death. 
He said, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer and then climbed the few steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. That account of Bonhoeffer's hanging has been accepted since 1945 until recently when some other Christian historian authors have begun to question that because this doctor who told this story, when he, when he testified that, he was actually on trial for war crimes because he was the doctor who would go to the prison executions and his job was to revive the men that had just been hanged so they could be hanged again and again and again. It took six hours to hang six men. Bonhoeffer and five others. His death was probably quite horrendous. The price that he paid to speak up for truth against evil. Mark 8, 34 to 38 says, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus said, Mark eight thirty eight, If you are ashamed of me in front of the wicked of the world, I will be ashamed of you when I come. In the year 160, back in the days of the Roman Empire, 160, 160 years after Jesus, this man is Polycarp. He was 86 years old. He was the oldest man. He was the only man left who knew one of the original 12 apostles. He was a disciple of the apostle John. John had died 60 years before this. Polycarp is 86 years old. He had known the apostle John in his youth. He is the de facto leader of the church at that time because He's the oldest guy around. The Romans had put out a warrant for his arrest. They were, this is in the days when they fed the Christians the lions in the arenas with the gladiators and so on. Polycarp knew that he, his life was being hunted. His disciples, followers, the fellow Christians kept telling him, you need to run, you need to escape. And he said, I'm too old. I'm happy to go. And he would not leave. He would not run away. He was in, praying one afternoon and he had a vision it wasn't physically happening, but he had a vision of his pillow on fire as he was praying, and he came out of his prayer time, and he told his disciples, I, I will soon die by being burned at the stake. And it wasn't two days later, Roman soldiers showed up where he was to arrest him. He met them at the door and offered them food and water, and he said, uh, uh, would you allow me an hour to pray? And they said, we'll, we'll give you an hour. And he spent that hour praying for them and their souls and their families, the men who had come to arrest him. They took him off to whatever city it was, Alexandria, Egypt, and they took him at a few days later to the arena where the events was scheduled. There was gladiators fighting and so on, and then part of it, part of the celebrations was that they always executed Christians in the, as the intermission between the gladiator fights. They bring out 86-year-old Polycarp, and they put him in the middle of the dirt floor of the arena in front of thousands of people in the crowd. The proconsul stands up from his booth up above him, and he says, I command you to say, down with the atheists. 
the Romans called the Christians atheists because they wouldn't worship Jupiter and Saturn and Mars and Rome, uh, Venus, uh, not the planets, but their pantheon of gods. They called the Christians atheists. He says, I command you to say, down with the atheists. And Polycarp looks at the crowd in silence for a moment and he says, yes, down with the atheists. And the proconsul knew what he meant. And he was angry and he said, reproach Christ and you will live. And Polycarp said this, and I quote from a parchment fragment of an eyewitness of this event. He says, 86 years I have served him and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw them to you if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good, to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from my evil into his righteousness. Well, if you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Then the eyewitness that wrote this fragment that we have for history, he said this, Ready to be an acceptable burnt offering to God, Polycarp looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice to you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and I glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your Son. To you, with him, through the Holy Ghost, be glory, both now and forever. They tied him to a stake on a pile of wood, and they burned him in front of the crowd. Philippians 3, 8 through 11 says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. These five men, their names are Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Roger Yadurian, and Ed McCulley. They are all graduates of Wheaton College in Illinois in the early 1950s. In their late 20s, some of them are married, some with children. They decide that God has sent them on a mission to Ecuador, to the Amazon jungle. There is a tribe they called the Alka Indians back then. Now they're known as the Wadani tribe. The Alka Indians, as they were called at the time, they had never had contact with the outside world. They'd never been outside of the jungle. But there were tribes around them that did have contact with the Hispanic population of Ecuador and the outside world, and they described a horrendous scene in the jungle. The, The people lived in terrible poverty, 
in terrible disease, and most of all, that their whole family culture and economy were based in murder. That 70% of the people who died, died in murder, and that no one ever lived to be a grandparent because revenge killing was the culture of the Wadani people. Their warriors were very fierce, and they would kill anybody that drew near their village, and they were killing each other all the time. So these five young men in their late 20s and early 30s decide that God has called them to take medical care and make contact and bring Jesus and change that culture of these people and set them free from this hatred and murder. So in, the, in 1954, they move their families to the jungle in Ecuador and they begin to make preparations. They learn the language of the people, words that they would need to know from, from the outlying tribes and they begin to fly over their villages in Nate Saint's airplane and they drop gifts to them. They drop toys and ribbons and machetes and food and because it was going to be super dangerous to land the plane and make contact. People around them said, you're crazy. All of the other native tribes around them said, you're crazy. They will never let you in. They will kill you all. And so their wives and their friends and the other people on the mission team said, what will you do if they attack you when you land? And they all five made a very specific and intentional decision. They said, we will not defend ourselves. We will not shoot them because we are ready for eternity and they are not. So January 8th, 1956, after numerous flights over the village and dropping presents, speaking to them over a loudspeaker, telling them they're friendly, they're going to land. They, they had found a sandbar along the river that was open enough for Nate to land his plane on and then take off again. They decided that this was the day. January 8th, 1956, they land their plane on this sandbar after drawing attention at the village. And then they, one of the guys, Roger, I think, was on the radio and he radioed back to the mission base to their wives and the other people on the team. And they said, there's Indians in the jungle. We hear them coming. We will make contact at 4 o'clock and let you know how it went. Well, 4 o'clock came and went, and there was no radio call. The next day, they flew a plane over the scene, and this is what they found. The airplane was ripped to shreds. There were spears in it. There was no men to be seen. Over the next two weeks, they found all five bodies floating downstream in the river. They'd all been speared. This Nate Saint left a wife and two children. This is his son, Steve. I'll show you in just a minute um, why I'm pointing him out. This is his four or five-year-old son, Steve. This is Jim Elliott. You may have heard of his wife, Elizabeth Elliott. You may have read some of their books. Jim's quote in his Bible that he left said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. quote from Nate Saint, he said, People who do not know the Lord ask why in the world we waste our lives as missionaries. They forget that they too are expending their lives, and when the bubble has burst, they will have nothing of eternal significance to show for the years they have wasted. The beauty of this story does not end with the death of these five guys. They gave their lives to try to make contact with these people for Jesus. And they all died before it could happen. But the beauty, the, the heartbreaking, terrible beauty of this story is that Jim's wife, Elizabeth, and Nate's sister, Rachel, went in again. They said that the fact that, these, that our husbands and brothers died does not mean the mission work stops. They went in again to make contact with these people, and they weren't killed. They were accepted with great 
uh, distance and suspicion, but they weren't killed. And over time, particular, this is Elizabeth Elliot, Jim's wife, and their daughter. This is Rachel Saint. He's Nate Saint's sister. And they shared Jesus. And they lived with them. They built their houses and they taught them. They gave them medical care. They brought them out of poverty. And slowly, people began to accept Jesus. And these warriors who were known for keeping track of how many people they killed over time began, began to keep track of how many people they had won to Jesus. This is Steve, the four-year-old boy, when his dad was murdered on the sandbar along the river. Steve Saint actually, for decades, went and lived with the tribe and discipled the people. These are some of those warriors, now old men. They said These men say, we are the oldest men that has ever lived in our in our people because nobody ever lived to old age. Everybody got killed. This particular man here, his name is Minkaye. And Minkaye, when Steve first moved in after a few months or a year, something of living with the people, Minkaye told Steve, he said, we need to go on a canoe ride down the river. And he put Steve in the canoe and they rode down the river and they pulled off on the bank and Minkaye began to tremble and he said, Steve, this is where it happened. He said, this is where... The, the five men were killed, and you need to know I am the man that killed your father. Minkai has now been a Christian for some years. Steve has known him as a friend, and Minkai just confesses, I'm the man that killed your dad. Steve had some obvious emotion to work through with that, but he knew Minkai, he knew he's a man of God, he loves him. And Minkai told him something that he, nobody had ever told any of the missionaries in, this is 20 or 30 years later. Minkai said, you know why Rachel and Elizabeth weren't killed when they came in the second time? He said, it's because when we were spearing your dad and the other four men, all of us, we Laodani warriors and the five white men, we all saw gigantic creatures with wings of fire come down out of the sky and they picked up your dad and the other men and they carried them across the great river, meaning death. He said, it wasn't me that saw it. We all saw it. We watched them together. He said, the men that we had speared that weren't dead yet, they were looking and speaking at them too. We all saw it. And we knew there was something that somebody you had brought with you that we needed to meet again. So when your women came in, we decided not to kill them. Steve obviously had some emotion to work through, but eventually he came to Minkaye, the warrior that had killed his own dad, and he said, would you adopt me? as your son. He said, I want you to be my dad. The man that murdered his father, he asked him to be his father. John 12 says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, Let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. I suppose that two or three years ago, most of you heard about Boko Haram. It's an Islamic terrorist group in Nigeria. They've sworn allegiance to ISIS. They came into a girl's school, a Christian girl's school, and they kidnapped 276 girls age 6 to 26. They killed all the men in the village, all the boys, the young girls, 6 to 26, 
to what basically amounts to a rape camp where the description of what happened is so horrendous, I cannot read it to you. I was going to, but I just, I can't. It's so horrendous what they've done. America and the world knows about the 276 Shebok girls who were only because there was a Christian settlement, a Christian school. They didn't do this to Muslim girls. They came in and they took these girls hostage. But it's way more than 276. There are tens of thousands of girls that have been hauled off by these Muslim terrorists called Boko Haram in Nigeria. And they are held hostage in camps. They're raped. They're forced to convert to Islam. The men tell them, we have killed all the men in your family and we will breed Christianity out of you. One woman said, I was tied up hands and feet in a man's house and he raped me five times a day for two years. He was 60 and I was 15. One woman said, there was 48 men in my house and two girls. Use your imagination. That was her words. The Nigerian army is doing their best to, to fight Boko Haram and set these girls free, but these girls have nothing to come home to. Literally all of the men in their families and their entire clans are dead. Their village is gone. They have nowhere to go. So the Nigerian army sets up camps for these girls. There are, the America knows about 276 girls. Folks, there are more than one camp. There's like five or six camps in Nigeria, and one of them alone has 20,000 women and children. The children, the products of rape by these Muslim terrorists. And it is done to them only and specifically because they're Christian. Hebrews eleven thirty five through 39 says, Others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning, some were sawed in half, others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All of these people earned a good reputation with God because of their faith. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, April 30, 2016, Two weeks ago, yesterday, this happened. I'm just going to read the account by this man's friend. I want to tell you about one of the great men in North Korea ministry upon the occasion of his martyrdom in Changbai, China, Saturday, April 30, 2016. His name was Pastor Han. He was 49 years old and married with one son and one daughter. Changbai borders North Korea. In 1993, North Korea was gripped by famine, and North Koreans flooded across the border looking for food and clothing, money, anything. It was rumored along the border in North Korea that if you went to the building with the cross on top, they would help you. In Changbai, there was only one building with a cross on top, and it was Pastor Han's church. Pastor Han never sought to start a North Korea ministry. He simply responded faithfully to whatever God gave him to do. So as North Koreans knocked at the door of his church, he gave them food and clothing in Christ. Then North Koreans began to knock on the doors of homes all over Changbai. Pastor Han trained ordinary people how to help North Koreans. Pastor Han was devoted to helping North Koreans enter the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of South Korea. He insisted that North Koreans that he helped should return home to their family and their country 
and not abandon them. He said, when it, whether this person lives or dies, they have to go back. If they die, God will honor them. But if they go to South Korea, they will turn their backs on God. Pastor Han was not a broker, not a human rights activist, not a guest on radio programs, not a speaker in pulpits. He was a pastor. And all that he was doing was pastoring anyone who came to him. And then he would send them home. One of Pastor Han's deacons was kidnapped inside China by North Korean agents in November of 2014. He was taken back across the border to North Korea and imprisoned and tortured. Pastor Han thought it best to deal with the situation quietly through private channels. He knew that if we went public with the news about his deacon, that his North Korea work in Chiang Mai would have to close down. He did agree to a whole new set of security precautions. He agreed not to drive along the border and not to go meet North Koreans alone when they called and asked for help. Back inside North Korea, the authorities started rounding up anyone who had ever met with Pastor Han inside Chiang Mai. We knew that information about his church had leaked. We knew the North Koreans had issued an order for Pastor Han to be kidnapped and brought back to North Korea for torture and execution. But Pastor Han was his usual self. He talked soberly, but without fear, about returning to Chiang Mai at the end of the holiday. He was quite cheerful as he hung around our office and caught up on phone calls. I can still recall him standing there staring out the window at nothing in particular as he talked very casually on the phone. On Saturday, April 30, 2016, at 2 p.m., Pastor Han left his church building in Chiang Mai. At 8 p.m., his body was found mangled beyond recognition. There were multiple knife wounds in his stomach, and his head had been chopped up with an axe. The North Koreans who killed Pastor Han returned to North Korea, as everyone who encountered Pastor Han always did. They reported their story about their encounter with him, and I'm sure their superiors were eager to receive this report in every detail. But all over North Korea, there are countless others. They are the North Koreans who every day since 1993 encountered Pastor Han. Orphans, sex trafficked women, soldiers, professors, housewives, the famine starved. They'd heard a story about a man named Jesus from Pastor Han, and they'd seen his heart. And this enabled them to accept his invitation to cross that rope bridge in their mind that led them to the kingdom of God. And this enabled them to return to North Korea with the story about their encounter with Christ. And they shared it with their friends and family, who I'm sure are eager to receive their report in every detail. And this story will be continued. As Pastor Han would describe it, it's a story about how though we may die, God will honor us. It's a story about how God never turns his back on you. It's a story about how even when at last you are compassed on every side by your enemies, bloodied and left to die in this world, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot put it out. Philippians 1, 20 and 21 says, I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed and that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die, for to me, Living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Whatever you think is true in Legrand has to work in Nigeria, or it isn't true. Whatever you've been taught in Reading or Toronto or anywhere else has to be true in Iraq and Syria, or it isn't true. Whatever book you've read or podcast you've listened to or prophecy that you think is inspired, whatever you claim to believe about God's protection and faith and goodwill and joy, it has to work in North Korea and China. 
or it isn't God. And whatever you're having trouble forgiving, you might want to remember these folks. Two weeks ago, the Lord led me to Jeremiah 12, 5, which set off just an explosion in my heart. It was all I could think about. It was in my thoughts and feelings, and I was, it was all I thought about for days, and I, re- I, was, I was really excited. It's what led to this message, and I'm going to read to you Jeremiah 12 now. But I knew I couldn't do this last Sunday on Mother's Day. <laughs> so I kind of had to just let it burn through the week and make it another week. But this is Jeremiah 12. It's the word of the Lord to me. I know it's the word of the Lord to the church right now. This is Jeremiah 12. Jeremiah is talking to God in the first half of the chapter, and God is answering him in the second half of the chapter. Jeremiah says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far in their mind. Jeremiah asks God the same question that Habakkuk asks, that Job asks, that David asks. Asaph asks this in the Psalms. Moses asks God, it's a a question on humanity's heart. God, why do bad people get away with what they do, and why do terrible stuff happen to good people? It's a, it's a totally legitimate question. And Jeremiah says, God, I know you're always right, but I got a question for you. Why are these evil people getting away with what they're getting away with? And he says, you, O oh Lord, you know me. You have seen me. You have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there. He says, God, you know me, you know I'm pure. But God, kill them. Pull them out like sheep to be butchered. How long are you going to let the land suffer under their wickedness? Take them out. Some of you might have that prayer in your heart right now. 2016. It's a totally legitimate thought, feeling, question. Here's God's answer. Jeremiah 12, verse 5. God says to Jeremiah, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you race with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the thornbrush thickets of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them even though they speak smooth words to you. For the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat but reaped thorns. They have put themselves to pain but do not profit. Be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. God tells Jeremiah, first he asks Jeremiah a question. It's very similar to what he says to Job when Job, when he finally shows up to answer Job. He says, Jeremiah, if you're tired now, how are you going to make it tomorrow? If you can't run the 50-yard dash, how are you going to run in the horse race? Meaning, Jeremiah, you're complaining today. Wait till I show up. Because he says, I am going to show up. And I am going to put an end to the wickedness. And when I do, it's going to be pretty bad. And it was. The whole book of Jeremiah is Jeremiah prophesying that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army are coming to wipe out Israel because of our wickedness. And it happened. 
And when it did, the righteous suffered with the wicked. Daniel gets hauled off. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezra's family, Esther's family. Jeremiah got hauled off. God says, Jeremiah, be careful what you pray. Because if you're upset now, wait till I show up. Jeremiah 12.5, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, how are you going to race with horses? If in the land of peace, if in the flat, easy land to run on, you're complaining about being tired now and how hard life is, wait till you're running in the thorn brush. The Jordan River, just like Catherine Creek and some other rivers in eastern Oregon, it's overgrown with thorn brush. We've got hawthorn here. There it's acacia. It's actually very nearly the same plant these thickets of thorn brush that would grow in the plain of the Jordan. And God says, if you're having trouble running when it's flat and easy, it's going to get real hard here. Basically, God tells Jeremiah, suck it up. If you think it's hard now, you're not going to make what's coming. The New Testament says the same thing. Hebrews 12, whoever wrote Hebrews for us, we don't know has some Christians complaining about how hard life is. And he says this, Remember Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Translation, suck it up, Christians, you aren't bleeding. It could be a lot worse. You could live in Nigeria. If you can't handle... In La Grande, Oregon, USA, if you can't handle being misunderstood by your spouse or your parent or your child, whom you love and they love you, how are you going to handle it when somebody is actually lying to destroy your life? If you can't forgive somebody's anger against you, how are you going to respond when somebody's actually killing you? Get ready to run with horses. If you're scared to speak up for morality at school or at work because somebody might be angry, how are you going to stand up for Jesus if your life is on the line? God tells Jeremiah, if you can't run when it's easy, you're going to have a hard time running when it's hard. If you can't remain calm and rational under a President Trump or a President Hillary, how would you survive under ISIS or the Nazis? It's awfully quiet in this Baptist church. If you're scared now in the land of peace, how will you survive the land of war? If you can't run with men, you can't run with horses. If you can't handle the inconveniences of our super spoiled life, how are you going to handle it when the whole system fails? In China, a 25-year-old mom goes to prison for two years for teaching kindergartners about Jesus. And meanwhile, in Grande, it's difficult to get ladies to serve once in, uh, one hour a month in our nursery. Chinese pastors are ministering knowing that there's a warrant out for their arrest and murder And in America, there's somebody having a hard time getting out of bed to get the worship team on time. 
Our brothers and sisters in Syria have to watch their back 24-7. In Union County, we can drive to church publicly in peace and sing happy songs, but dang, we're in a hurry to get home and watch football. In Syria, Jesus asks for your head. In Legrand, he only asks that you volunteer a little time to mow the grass at the church. Make yourself available. Get ready to run with horses. We're going to have to make some hard and expensive decisions very soon. Nostalgia is going to get us killed and inability to adapt is going to get us killed. I had absolutely no idea when two weeks ago I printed this out to put in the bulletin today. I had no idea what the Oregon Department of Education would do on Monday and what the Federal Department of Justice did on Friday ordering perverts in our girls' bathrooms. I had no idea, and it fits exactly, perfectly, the battle that we have to fight. Six weeks ago or so, the FDA relaxed the regulations on the abortion pill and demand for it went up times four. Women buying a pill to kill their babies up to age 10 weeks when they can suck their thumb and burp. You can kill them in the privacy of your own home. And it's our government allowing this and driving us into hell. We have, America has, our new Dietrich Bonhoeffer already. We have the 20-something-year-old man that went in and filmed government employees selling human body parts, which is grotesquely illegal, and he is the one arrested and facing criminal charges. 20-something years old is, it is exactly the same as what Bonhoeffer did. To stand up and say, even if nobody else stands with me, I will give my life to stop this atrocity. The Holocaust of abortion in America dwarfs what the Nazis did. People want to judge the German Christians who knew that the concentration camps were there and didn't do anything. We know where every Planned Parenthood office in America is. We're going fishing. Corruption and fear and injustice is a time-honored tradition in American politics. It has always been there. But I'm hearing from the oldest people that there has never been division and fear in America like there is right now. There's nobody alive that lived in the days of the Revolution and the Civil War, so we don't know what they were thinking and feeling, except we do have their journals and their letters and their and the historical records but there have been times our country has been tremendously divided but they were also times when people had to give their blood to fight for truth Winston Churchill said the future though imminent is veiled we all know there is something super imminent we cannot see what it is I don't know what it is I don't know what's coming but everybody knows we are in the middle of cataclysmic change in American culture. There's a gate of hell opened up in Washington, D.C. 
and Salem and Hollywood and Wall Street and wherever else, every university, we're going to have to make some very expensive decisions. Did we mean what we said when we gave Jesus our life? It's absurd to say, well, this is America, it could never happen. It's absurd to preach fear about what we don't know either. But if we see a storm cloud coming over the mountain here, and we can see on the radar and the weather alerts that there's high wind and hail and damaging thunder and lightning in this storm, it would be absurd to say, oh, well, I hope it doesn't hit us. It would also be absurd to run around in fear. Oh, no, what if the storm kills my garden? What would be smart is to go out and cover your garden and get your car in the garage and prepare. It does no good to be afraid, and it does no good to deny it. It's coming. I think anybody that's paying attention knows some, some big storm is coming. Big storm is on the way. The future, though veiled, it is imminent. Our brothers and sisters in Iraq and Syria and Nigeria and China and North Korea are already there. It'll look like something different here. But we will not be immune from costly Christianity. Jesus will not allow us to come to our padded chairs and our air-conditioned buildings while the Christians in Syria and Nigeria are crucified and beheaded and raped and we think this is normal Christianity. Revelation 2.10 says, Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for ten days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Jesus says, don't be afraid at the most inopportune times. He has always just listed off a bunch of big scary stuff. And then he says, oh, don't be afraid. He said it twice in that passage in Mark 10 that I opened up, or Matthew 10 that I opened up with you. He says, they're going to flog you and put you in prison. Don't be afraid. God will work it all out in the end. So thanks a lot, Jesus. That's real comforting. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. If you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what it'll look like. But I think we're going to be the generation that's given the honor to usher in the return of Jesus. If it's not us, it's our sons and daughters. And when we received Jesus' invitation for salvation, we sold him our lives. I said we sold him our lives. And we have millions. I don't think the word millions is an exaggeration at all. We have millions of fathers and mothers in the faith that have gone ahead of us and they didn't quit. They were not cowards. They did not back off. They did not reproach Christ to save their own skin. What do we know for sure? What does the Bible say is going to happen? We can't know exactly what it will look like, but the Bible does give us some promises that we cannot stop or change or escape, by the way. One promise we have for sure is that the increase of his government will never end. Jesus' kingdom will grow and grow. The number of people saved and brought into the church of Jesus Christ is in the hundreds of thousands a day. The increase of his government, there will be no end. His glory will cover the earth like the water covers the sea. 
The church will grow larger and more pure than ever before. There will be a great harvest of souls, but it will be at the cost of blood. Babylon, which is in Revelation is the world system, it's their economy and government, will completely collapse. It's a promise. Don't have to be afraid of it. It That might happen. It is going to happen. The word apocalypse is a Bible word. There's not a zombie apocalypse. There's not a nuclear apocalypse. There is a Jesus apocalypse. That is the only one there is going to be. It's a promise. We are headed for apocalypse. Jesus promised in this world we will have much trouble. But he promised that he is with us and he will never leave us or forsake us. We can know for certain that he is returning to set up his kingdom, the throne of David, on the earth and restore justice and truth and righteousness and order. We can know for certain that every knee will bow. Both believers and unbelievers will be completely subjected to his authority. The wicked and the cowards will have the deepest unimaginable regret. And the righteous and the bold will will celebrate with the greatest unimaginable happiness that they didn't quit, that they didn't give up or back down. John 16, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus, thank you for your promise that you have overcome the world. Thank you that even in the midst of the world's nations raging and all of the problems of war and lies and corruption and money, all of the evil people striving to try to run things, Lord, amidst the insistence that we drive the world in through the gate of hell, Lord, you are in charge. You are on the throne on high and your name is above every other name. And only your will can happen, Lord. And all that happens is going to drive right into your plan. Lord, forgive us for being afraid. Forgive us for covering our candle with a basket. Forgive us for being selfish. You have blessed us so much, immeasurably so, Lord. And we've used it for selfishness rather than for sacrifice. Lord, we join our prayer with John and Peter in Acts. Give us more boldness that we may speak and stand. Give us more boldness, Jesus. Lord, you command us to remember our brothers and sisters in chains. So we bless our brothers and sisters in China and North Korea and Nigeria and Iraq and Syria and southern Mexico and Colombia. in Indonesia and Afghanistan. Lord, we bless our brothers and sisters, Lord. Give them courage. Make them shine bright. Bear great fruit for your kingdom, Lord. Lord, we sing a song just this morning. Everything I am for your kingdom's cause. Lord, we don't even know what we're singing. We don't even fully know what we are agreeing to and what we are saying. But Lord, receive our faith this morning that we are yours. Come what may, we are yours. We believe your word is true. We believe you love us.
that your kingdom will come and your will will be established and work, that your government will come to the earth. Whatever we face, we're yours. Lord, forgive us for complaining when we have to run with men. Get us in shape to run with horses. Y'all are awesome. Thank you for staying through all of that. Both services, I have people get up and walk out. The Lord told me there'd be some people pretty upset. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Be confident. Shine bright. Speak loud. Speak the truth. Share his love. Pray out his Holy Spirit. Do not be afraid. What's going to happen is going to happen. Let's move through it in faith rather than panic. But we got some people to take care of. If it does get bad here, which it certainly looks like it, the heat is turning up. 13 governors and Franklin Graham and Michael Brown and quite a few other people are calling for blatant disobedience of this order that came on Thursday or Friday from Washington about the bathroom stuff. I say amen. Never. We will not do it. I don't know if a line's been drawn in the sand with this issue. It seems like it. I don't know. We got a lot of people to love. We got a lot of people to take care of. We got a lot of people they are going to get woke up. And they're going to say, this is insanity. Where is truth? And you will be there to speak up and share Jesus and bring them into the kingdom and harvest in the fields. Don't back down. Don't quit. Don't go prepper on me. If you think guns and gold are the answer, you're totally missing the point. I own guns. I'm okay with that, but I'm not storing up ammo to shoot my neighbors when the apocalypse comes. Our answer should be to share and give and take care of and prepare to love and take care of people, not prepare to kill them. You're a great group. God bless you all. Be bold. Shine bright.